hopefully for many others. So the preachers are on, on Wednesdays, they're going through the passages that have encouraged them most in life. And so you can guess that you're probably going to walk away yourself encouraged Wednesday after Wednesday this summer. A couple of Wednesdays ago, we actually brought in Aaron from Redeemer Community Church to preach for us. And it was really a blessing because not only did he come, but they brought a good chunk of their church family. So it was a blessing for our churches to come together and worship together. But here's the thing, is that if Redeemer hadn't joined us that night, that room probably would have felt pretty empty. Okay, so this coming Wednesday, we're gonna have another guest preacher, Jason Vaughn from Cornerstone Community Church, a very good friend of ours. He was gonna bring the word to us. And so I wanna encourage you, if you're not doing anything on Wednesday night, uh, come out, come out. Uh, not only so that you would be blessed by another serving of God's word, but also so that we can encourage this brother, this pastor from, an, from another church who will have worked really hard to prepare a sermon for a flock that isn't his own, right? So let's just, let's, if you can, come out and let's honor that brother by having a good turnout this Wednesday. Let me ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll go into his word. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to not just read it with our eyes, but be transformed with it from the very depths of our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would take this truth and plant it deep in us so that we would walk away from here loving you more, knowing you more, and more encouraged to live for you by your help. Help us, Lord, to these ends, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Do you believe that God is a God who keeps his promises? If you don't, then you probably fall into one of these three categories. Firstly, you believe that God is not faithful or God is not trustworthy. And if that's the case, then the promises that he's made are conditional. They're unreliable. And if that's the case, that can only lead to doubt, fear, or despair in times of trouble or uncertainty. The second possibility is that you believe that God is not involved or he's not interested in human affairs and that his promises, therefore, are irrelevant. And that would likely lead to indifference or apathy or self-reliance. And a third possibility is that you just believe that God is not real or that if he is real, he's not knowable and that his promises are imaginary or man-made and that would make you a skeptic atheist, or agnostic. Now, these aren't new responses to God. Zacharias, for example, doubted the angel's announcements that he and his wife would have a son in their old age. The people of Israel throughout their history often acted like God wasn't involved. And Pharaoh in Egypt was skeptical of God's power and his plagues. And even if we are unwilling to say out loud with words that God is unfaithful, untrustworthy, uninvolved, uninterested, unreal, or unknowable. We sometimes act like we think that way. Even we who have been saved by Christ and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we can also struggle with doubt, fear, despair, indifference, apathy, self-reliance, and skepticism. So to combat that on this Lord's Day, we're going to look at God's Word, and we're going to meditate on the fact that God is a God who keeps His promises. And when we believe that, then we will find ourselves, by the Spirit's help, to be fearless, to be diligent and faithful. So that's the practical aim of our sermon today, and it's all really rooted in simply who God is. So we're going to see three aspects of who God is in this passage that will therefore encourage us to trust that he will keep his promises. All right? And here's the first aspect of who God is. Number one, he is the kingmaker. He is the kingmaker. Look at verse one with me. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach 
then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. So it seems here, in, starting in verse 1 of chapter 41, Isaiah is now writing God's words from God's very perspective. All of Scripture is God's words, but here in particular, it's from God's perspective. God addresses, in verse 1, the coastlands, which were either islands or they were just regions along the coastlines. And it was to these areas that the people had been scattered the farthest. This was, from their perspective, the ends of the earth, the coastlands. God is, therefore, addressing everyone to the ends of the earth. And to the coastlands, God says this in verse 1, Listen to me in silence. He was calling all the ends of the earth to pay careful attention to him, to give him their undivided attention. Look at the authority of God over all the nations. Yes, he was God of Israel, but he is God of the whole world. It's not as if he can only command Israel. He commands all people everywhere to listen to him in silence. They were to be attentive. They were to be reverent. May we all listen to God in silence. He then says in verse 1, Let the peoples renew their strength. So he's talking about the nations here when he says peoples. And he is essentially challenging the peoples, the nations, to a debate, to a trial. He's calling on them to muster up their strength, bring their strongest arguments to the table. He continues in verse 1, let them approach, let them speak. By the way, when God challenges you to a debate or a contest, it's not going to go well for you. Think about how he questioned Job for four chapters straight. Two chapters in, Job's like, and God's like, no, 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 no. We are not done yet, right? Think about also the the standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. God is basically saying here in verse 1, let them come into the courtroom. Let them make their strongest case. Also, by the way, If you were to face God in the courtroom today, what kind of case would you make? How would you try to defend all of your sinful actions? And if your answer is anything except that Christ has saved you, it's not going to go well for you. God goes on in verse 1 to say, Let us draw near for judgment. God is inviting these pagan nations to come closer and to bring and present their cases before him. He wants them to argue why they trust in their idols, why they doubt his ability to save his people. But in the end, he's going to give his evidence. He's going to give his reasons. Again, what a thought. Just imagine God saying to you, let us draw near for judgment. In verse 2, God starts to make his irrefutable case. Read verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. So God asks the nations, Who was the one who stirred up the one from the east? To stir up in this context means to raise somebody up to do something. And, and what this is talking about is God's work of raising someone up from the east and calling him to his service. God is the one who initiated and empowered this person's career as a conqueror and a deliverer. The one from the east is Cyrus the Great. He's the one in verse 1 called one from the east. He was the founder of the Achaemenid Empire, and he was the king of Persia from 559 to 530 BC. Persia was located to the east of Babylon. And in chapter 44, he's going to be specifically named by God. Now, was Cyrus told by Yahweh to do what he would do, like audibly? There is no evidence that Cyrus of Persia was directly commanded by God to conquer Babylon. 
even though we will see afterward that Cyrus does attribute his success to Yahweh and does honor him by decreeing that the Jews be allowed to go back to their land and rebuild the temple. But there is no indication that Cyrus worshipped God, exclusively at least, or even personally acknowledged God as his Lord and his God. More likely, he recognized Yahweh as just one of the supreme deities of the region, along with Marduk of Babylon and Ahura Mazda of Persia, even though we know those aren't real gods. All of this is to say that Cyrus didn't conquer Babylon for Yahweh. Cyrus did it for Persia. Cyrus did it for Cyrus. But Cyrus did it by God. He did it by God. Who stirred up one from the east? God did. How did God stir Cyrus up? Well, at this point, really can, we can really just speculate. There's really no evidence that God spoke directly to Cyrus to give him instructions. Or maybe he heard of this prophecy from Isaiah a couple hundred years before, naming him specifically. He also could have raised up Cyrus providentially in a way that Cyrus was raised by his parents or how he grew up in his community, the way that he was wired. God made Cyrus ambitious. He made him strong-willed. He could have also providentially led the advisors around Cyrus to nudge him in that direction. Whatever God did by his providence, he could say that he is the one that stirred up Cyrus. He stirred him up. This isn't, by the way, the first time in Scripture that God has said to stir up or to raise up a powerful leader. This may sound familiar to you. God said to Pharaoh in Exodus 9.16, Exodus 9.16, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God's purpose was to display his power, and be glorified in all the earth. And the way that he did that was by raising Pharaoh up to be the way Pharaoh was and to do what Pharaoh would do. God did this in a way in which he never forced Cyrus or Pharaoh to do anything against their own wills. That's not how God operates. The way that God operates is by working in and through the wills of human beings. For example, Proverbs 16.9 says this, Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So God ultimately is the one who decides where a man goes. But a man's plans come from man's own heart. One way that we actually see that very clearly is in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. Acts 4, 27 through 28. The believers pray this. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, end quote. God planned and predestined for Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews to have Jesus crucified for our sake. But they did it of their own accord. God didn't force them to kill their son. He didn't tempt them. But he providentially worked it out that they would for our sake. God established their steps, even though their hearts planned their own ways. And in that way, God stirred up Cyrus He raised up Cyrus in such a way that Cyrus could be described as the one, verse 2 says, whom victory meets at every step. Cyrus was successful in every military campaign he undertook, every one. He faced no difficult resistance. He faced no meaningful opposition. He defeated the Median Empire and united the Persians and the Medes in 550 B.C., He also conquered the Lydian Empire and annexed most of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to his domain in 547 BC. That's not an easy feat, but it was easy for Cyrus. 
Victory met Cyrus at every step. How? God. Verse 2 continues, in fact, He, that is God, gives up nations before him, Cyrus, so that he, Cyrus, tramples kings underfoot. God gave up nations before Cyrus. He allowed Cyrus to conquer them easily. God gave him favor and success in his endeavors. You may remember that he did that for Israel during their conquest of Canaan, right? If God was with them, if God fought for them, victory was guaranteed. The same help was being given to Cyrus now, someone outside of God's own people for the benefit of God's own people. Cyrus trampled kings underfoot. He defeated Astyahis, the king of the Medes, took over his kingdom. He overthrew Croesus, the king of Lydia, and annexed his rich and prosperous realm. He would end up doing, uh, I'm sorry, subduing Amasis II, the king of Egypt, and therefore extending his empire into Africa. And he had all of that success because God gave it to him. God gave it to him. Verse 2 continues, He, that is Cyrus, makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. Cyrus crushed them like dust and or made them scatter like dust with his sword. He made them like the cut stalks of grain that would just easily blow away with his bow. In short, it was easy for Cyrus to make his enemies retreat. God goes on to say of Cyrus in verse 3, He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. So Cyrus would pursue his fleeing enemies and pass on safely. His enemies were retreating. He followed them and continued his march without being harmed or hindered in any way. And he did all of that, verse 3, by paths his feet have not trod, meaning that he was advancing through these territories that were previously unknown to him. You see why that's interesting, right? Because usually a nation that's being invaded has the home field advantage. They know where everything is. Cyrus didn't know, but he was still moving along no problem. That's not usual. But this was not usual. God was with Cyrus, giving him success every step of the way. And then God asks in verse 4, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God was the one who both performed and did all of this. The words performed and done in this verse are synonyms, which uh, they would use this as a literary technique for emphasis. But there may also be a sense here of planning and carrying it out. This could rightly be understood, I brought it about and I carried it out. So both the origin and the progress of the event come from God. This is the distinction between God's decree and God's providence. Okay? Did you know there's a difference between God's decree and God's providence? From eternity past, God planned, he decreed. And then throughout history, he has been carrying out his plan flawlessly. That's providence. This is our God. He has performed and done this. Verse 4, calling the generations from the beginning. He is the one who created human beings and has maintained the succession of human beings all throughout history. And what that strongly implies then is that he's also the one who guides and controls the destinies of all nations and all peoples. Actually, God was asking a question. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Answer, verse 4, I, the Lord, the first. Now, oftentimes we see the phrase, the first and the last, but here in this particular instance, we see an emphasis on the first. God is the first. He is the eternal and unchanging being who existed before any creatures, before any history, he is the first, unlike all of the idols of the world. The idols were recently created. 
the idols would soon perish. God, however, is Yahweh. Unlike anyone else, he is absolute. He is self-existent. He is the great, I am who I am. He is the first, verse 4, and with the last. Not only has he always been, but he always will be. He's going to outlast this world. He is the first and with the last. It's notable, though, that he doesn't just say that he is the first and the last, like he does in other places. Here he says he's the first and with the last. And perhaps what's being said here is that as time progresses from our perspective, he is always with the current generation. He's always present with them. And since we have everlasting life, we are going to go on for all eternity, we who believe in him. And God will be with us. He is with the last. For emphasis, at the end of verse 4, God says this, I am he. He is the first. He is with the last. He is the only true and living God who has no rival. He has no equal. It was this God who raised up the king that everybody was being conquered by. The people feared King Cyrus of Persia. He was going from place to place, making his enemies flee before him, making himself at home. But it was God who raised Cyrus up. He was the kingmaker. Now, what was the point of saying all of this to the people here? Remember from the beginning of the passage that God was challenging the nations to make a case against him and for their idols. But apparently, their idols couldn't even protect them from the man that he raised up against them. This proves God to be far superior to these false gods. It shows God as sovereign over all nations. God raised up Cyrus. Did God not raise up a greater king for us? Isn't Jesus the one whom ultimately victory meets at every step? Revelation 17.4 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Is not Jesus the one to whom ultimately the Father gave the nations? Matthew 28.18 And Jesus came and said to me, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And will not Jesus be the one to put all nations and kings under his feet? 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yes, Cyrus was great. Jesus is greater. Jesus is a much greater king than even King Cyrus. Who has performed and done this? God, the Lord, the first and with the last. He has done this. And if God, the one calling the generations from the beginning, has done this, what chances do his enemies have? What chances do the false gods and the idols of this world have? Last week we saw that God takes down kings as he pleases. Today we see that he raises up kings as he pleases. And he has been pleased to raise up a perfect king for us. And just as Cyrus's victory was guaranteed over the Babylonians, so Christ's victory is guaranteed over sin and death and Satan. Will you put your trust in him today? Will you find your peace and joy and satisfaction in Jesus? God is the kingmaker. Secondly, he is the idol crusher. He is the idol crusher. Verse 5 says this, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So the coastlands, the islands, the coastal regions, they're afraid. And basically what that means is the farthest known regions had heard of Cyrus's conquest, and they were afraid. The same idea is expressed in the next phrase in verse 5, the ends of the earth tremble. Cyrus's conquest caused fear and trembling among the nations that he hadn't conquered yet. And then the end of verse 5 says, they have drawn near and come. 
The idea here is that they have gathered to form an alliance. They realized that they were no match for Cyrus, alone anyway, and they thought that if they came together, they stood a chance against him. Egypt, Babylon, and Lydia did end up forming an alliance to stand against Cyrus. And that sounds all well and good. But Cyrus's ally in this whole thing was the God of the universe. No alliance stands a chance against God. Verse 6 says, Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. This is almost sad. It's usually actually inspiring to see people come together for a common cause. It's generally good to encourage others to be strong. But in this case, people were allying themselves together against God. That reminds us of the unlikely alliances that were made against Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Pharisees and Sadducees, rivals, came together against Jesus. Herod and Pontius Pilate, enemies, became friends after falsely judging Jesus. Think about the alliances formed against God today. Think about the LGBTQIA plus movement with all of its allies. Consider how they help each other and say to each other, be strong. Think about the so-called Church of Satan, which is really just atheists banding together to mock God and his people. Think about the videos of the pro-abortion women in Ireland cheering and hugging and crying tears of joy when it was announced that it was now legal for them to kill their children. If you are against God, then these friendships and these alliances seem good and healthy. But really, it's just sad because their standing together against God is both wicked and futile. Here's more futility. Verse 7 says this, The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with a hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. The craftsman was the one who built the structure of the idol, and then the goldsmith would be the one to overlay the idol with gold or adorn it with gold. And the craftsman would strengthen the goldsmith. Hey, you're doing great. Encouraging him in his idolatry. And then there's verse 7, he who smooths with the hammer, who was perhaps the man who would actually fit the gold plating onto the idol. Then there was also, to round off this team, in verse 7, him who strikes the anvil, the one who works at the anvil, making parts for the idol and or nails. The one who smooths with a hammer strengthens him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, in verse 7, it is good. The soldering is when the gold plates were joined together to form the idol. They encourage each other in their work of creating idols. That phrase there, too, it is good, that carries a great irony in it as well. I'm not sure if God is alluding to this in this verse, but those words certainly echo when someone else said that what he created was good. These people were not only making idols, they were playing God. The end of verse 7 says this, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Look at the teamwork here. The one who strikes the anvil would make the nails. And then one or more of the others would take the nails and nail down the idol in their false temple to make sure that the idol didn't fall over. Consider the futility, the silliness of this all. These false gods were unable to hold up the idols that represented them. So they took it upon themselves, these people, to make nails in order to fasten their idols to the ground. These idols to whom Babylon and others would turn would be crushed by God. God is the idol crusher. Think about how in Exodus, for example, God sent 10 plagues. You ever wonder why he sent 10 plagues? He was demonstrating his victory over Egypt's false gods. The first plague, turning the Nile into blood. 
showed God's victory over Happy, the god of the Nile. The second plague brought frogs out of the Nile, mocking Hecate, the frog-headed goddess. By the way, the Egyptians held frogs to be sacred, so they actually couldn't even kill the frogs. They just had to wait for Yahweh to remove them. The third plague turned the dust of the earth into gnats, which was an affront to Jeb, who was the god of the earth. The fourth plague sent swarms of flies upon the Egyptians, confronting Re, the sun god, who was supposed to be able to drive away flies with his heat. The fifth plague killed the livestock of the Egyptians, which was a judgment on Hathor, the cow-headed goddess. The sixth plague caused boils and sores, which is a strike against Sekhmet, the goddess of plagues and healing, who couldn't stop the diseases. The seventh plague brought hail mixed with fire, which was a challenge to Nut, the sky goddess, who couldn't even protect the Egyptians from the sky. The eighth plague unleashed locusts, which were associated with a god of storms and chaos, Seth. The ninth plague brought darkness over the land of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites, for three days, which humiliated Ra, the supreme sun god, the most important deity in Egypt. And then the tenth and final plague killed the firstborn sons of Egypt, which was devastating to Pharaoh, who was himself considered a god. Consider also when the false god Baal wouldn't answer his prophets, even when they were cutting themselves, but God sent down fire from heaven to consume Elijah's soaked sacrifice. Or when the Philistines captured the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon, whose idol God knocked over twice, the second time breaking off his head and his hands. Let's be reminded at this moment that none of these gods were real, but these were the gods whom the peoples created and worshipped. And time and time again, God revealed these idols to be false and powerless by crushing them. God is the idol crusher. These men would create idols to protect them, but predictably, their idols would fail. For the gods whom the idols represented were not real. God, however, is real. And there was no stopping him from using Cyrus to defeat Egypt and Lydia and Babylon. And if you were one of God's people, captives and slaves under Babylon, this is something that you needed to hear. It's something we all need to hear as well. Because the one who is behind all of these false gods is also called the god of this world. He is Satan, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He was the one in the garden who deceived Eve and plunged humanity into death. But God cursed Satan, promising that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Who is this seed of the woman? Who is this snake crusher? Jesus Christ, the righteous. God has already demonstrated his victory through Jesus Christ in the reversal of the death of Christ that Satan facilitated. When Christ rose from the grave, Satan suffered grave defeat. And he will demonstrate final victory over Satan when, after Christ returns, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Christ is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Christ is the one who crushes the false gods whom Satan has fabricated. And therefore, as we endure challenges in our own exile, will we wait for him? Just as the Judahites likely would have been hearing about the fall of the nations around Babylon, so now we hear about the experience of the gospel being spread all over the world the spread of Jesus' kingdom to all nations. The gospel continues to spread throughout the world, continues to be translated into more and more languages. And the view that we have of heaven is that we will have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising God with us forever. How do you think this could encourage us during difficult times? Jesus Christ is victorious. 
and in an even greater way than Cyrus, victory will meet him at every step. Wait for him. At just the right time, he will consummate his victory. He will once again cross over the border of heaven into earth and put an end to all of the wickedness in the world. And he will bring his people out of exile and back home with him. God is the kingmaker. He is the idol crusher. And thirdly, he is the upholder. He is the upholder. God says in verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. In other sermons, we have said before that two of the greatest words in Scripture are, but God. These first couple of words in verse 8 are pretty much on the same level. But you. The nations are going to be brought low. Their idols are going to be defeated. But you, Israel, my servant. In this day and age, we may not like being called a servant. We like our freedom. We like being number one. But God's calling Israel his servant is a precious thing. To be a servant of God means to be owned by God. To be a servant of God means that God is one's master. Therefore, to be a servant of the Most High God is an honor of the highest degree. Not only does God call Israel his servant, but he also calls them Jacob, whom I have chosen. Remember that Israel and Jacob are the same people. Okay? Jacob was renamed Israel by God. God had chosen them. Israel was God's chosen people, the people of his own possession. Why did God choose Jacob? It wasn't, anything, it wasn't because of anything in him. Actually, Romans 9, 10-13 tells us this. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Jacob hadn't even done anything yet. And yet God chose him and his descendants over Esau and his descendants. It was a choice of sovereign grace. And because God had chosen Jacob, he was going to be faithful to Israel. Even in the situation in which they found themselves in Babylon. In verse 8, God also refers to them as the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham. So the basis for God's covenant faithfulness to Jacob was his covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Going back to Genesis 12 and following, God promised to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. He promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. He promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then in Abraham and Sarah's old ages, he blessed them with a son, Isaac, through whom the promise would continue. And then he gave Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, through whom the promise would continue. So God would have the people of Judah remember that they are offspring of Abraham. And just as he has always been faithful to the promise he made to Abraham, he would continue to be faithful to them. And then at the end of verse 48, we find two more incredible words. My friend. My friend. Whether it's Abraham or Israel that's being referred to here as God's friend is not certain. It's probably referring to Abraham. Uh, and in which case, we would understand the verse as saying, offspring of my friend Abraham. And the reason that we're leaning that way, that it's talking about Abraham, is that 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, as well as James chapter 2, verse 23, they both refer to Abraham as God's friend. But either way, whether it's Abraham or Israel, can we just consider for a moment how incredible it is that God would make friends with any human being? Just like us, Abraham was a sinner. 
And before God called him, Abraham was a pagan and likely a moon worshiper. But God called Abraham and made him his friend. Even if God weren't calling Israel his friend here, and he was only referring to Abraham, this still would have been encouraging to the Judahites in exile. It would be as if to say, Abraham was my friend, and you are his descendants. I'm going to show you steadfast love. Incredibly, I think it's safe to say that God considers us his friends also. Incredibly. In John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And all that Jesus had made known to his disciples has also been made known to us. God continues to address Israel in verse 9. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Now, in what way had God taken Israel from the ends of the earth and called Israel from its farthest corners? Well, a couple ways. Going back to Abraham, God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, which was a remote country. He had also called out Israel from Egypt, which as, as far as they knew at the time, the farthest corner of the earth. But oh, how this has found an even greater fulfillment in Christ. Unlike no other time in history, it can be now said about God's people, I took you from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. Verse 9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. Again, what an honor. I have chosen you and not cast you off. God had not cast them off. Even though it may have felt like that for the Judahites in their 70 years of Babylonian captivity. But can we just consider for a moment how amazing it is that he had not cast them off? Almost immediately after God rescued them from Egypt in Exodus, they grumbled against him. They longed for the provisions they had under slavery. They rebelled against Moses, God's leader, whom he had put over them. They disobeyed God's commandments over and over again. They rejected Yahweh as king and demanded a human one. They built idols and bowed down to them. They worshiped the false gods of the people around them. The other day, we had a stranger walk into our D group, and he was said, he thought he had something like paradigm shifting. He pointed out that Israel was polytheistic. Israel worshiped multiple gods. And we said something along the lines of, yeah, they were, but they shouldn't have been, right? This is not new information to us. They were worshiping other gods, but they shouldn't have been. But God did not cast them off. It's one thing for us to hold on to those who are faithful friends in your life. It's quite another thing to hold on to people who treat you like this. But God didn't cast them off. And neither does he cast us off. Praise God. How often we grumble against him and look back at our old lives under slavery. How often we rebel against the authority structures that God has placed over us, thus rebelling against God himself. How often we disobey his commandments over and over again, reject God as king and put ourselves on his throne and build idols in our hearts and worship them. Yet nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In light of this covenant faithfulness that he's drawing their attention to, in fact, on the basis of that covenant faithfulness, he tells them in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. They didn't need to be afraid. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was with them. They didn't need to be afraid. 
He was with them and for them. What are some things they might have been afraid of? They might have been afraid of their captors, the Babylonian Empire, which crushed Jerusalem and took many of its people. They might have been even afraid of Cyrus and his empire. After all, they're hearing about this empire that's even stronger than the empire that has conquered them. But they had no reason to fear. Why did they have no reason to fear? God says, for I am with you. When God, the one who rules over all the earth, the one who rules over all kings, the one who commands and upholds the stars is with you, you have nothing to fear. He also tells him in verse 10, verse 10, be not dismayed. Literally, the phrase means look not around. And we understand that idea. In moments of terror, people just look around in a panic. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Why do they not have to look around in dismay? God says in verse 10, for I am your God. The Egyptians had their gods. The Babylonians had Marduk, Ishtar, Nabu, and Nergal. Other nations had Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, and Milcom. And Cyrus's Persia had Ahura Mazda, but none of those gods were gods at all. God is the one who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand. God is the one who sits above the circle of the earth and brings princes to nothing. God is the one who calls all the stars by name and makes sure that not one of them is missing. And God was their God. They did not need to be dismayed. God then promises to strengthen them, help them, and uphold them with his righteous right hand. God would strengthen them. He would give them the strength that they needed to overcome their trials in Babylon. Remember from last week that chapter 40, verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Because God was their God, they would be given supernatural strength to endure. He would also help them. Not only would God give them the strength to endure, but he would actually also help them out of their situation. He would send Cyrus from Persia to conquer their captors and to deliver his people and bring them back to their homeland. God is not just a God who commiserates or empathizes. He's a God who helps. He would also uphold them. He would hold them up. He would sustain them. And he would do so, verse 10 says, with his righteous right hand. It's interesting that God chose to use the word righteous to describe his right hand. It's because God upholds his people according to his righteousness. He is just. He is just to judge Babylon and save his own people. It's not as if Babylon had its hands clean. They oppressed and mistreated God's people, showing them no mercy or compassion. They worshipped idols and false gods, and they led God's people astray. They were infamously violent and cruel, shedding the blood of many people. God would uphold Israel with his righteous right hand. And his right hand, of course, is referring to his power, referring to his authority. God is both righteous and powerful. He is righteous and powerful, and we are blessed that he is both of those things, okay? If he were righteous but not powerful, then he could do nothing, well, meaning though he would be. And if he were powerful but not righteous, then we would have a terrible tyrant ruling over us. So praise God that he is both righteous and powerful. God is the upholder. He is the upholder and this is another reason that God's people can be assured that he keeps his promises. He's powerful to do so. He actually can keep his promises. And he has committed to keep his promises according to his perfect, righteous character. Brothers and sisters, we need not fear. God is with us. 
And we understand this now in an even fuller way. The Messiah would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Son of God took on human flesh so that God might dwell with us. And having lived a perfect life among men and dying on the cross at the hands of men, he rose again and ascended to the right hand of his Father. And then he sent his Spirit to dwell in us and help us. In an even more magnificent way than the Israelites experienced, even more amazing than having a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke, God is with us. The Spirit of Christ is in us, working in us, transforming us, strengthening us, and helping us. He upholds us every day, not just from without, but from within. How incredible it is that God is the upholder of his people. God is the kingmaker, he is the idol crusher, and he is the upholder, and he calls our attention to these realities to assure us that he is a God who keeps his promises. He has invited us into a heavenly courtroom today and laid out all the evidence before us. Who among us will bring a charge against God? The gods of this world are nothing. He raised up a king for his people, a king even greater than Cyrus the Great, and this king will reign victoriously from now and forever. This God will hold us up while we wait for the fulfillment of every last promise. Do you believe in this God? He is the only true and living God, and he has offered you peace with him through faith in Jesus Christ, whom he sent in love to die on the cross in our place. Friends, put your trust in him and he will deliver you. Christian, are you weary? Do you struggle to see that God is working even now for your good and he's going to bring you to the very end? God has raised up a king for you whom victory meets at every step. Fear not, he is with you. Be not dismayed. He is your God. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you with his righteous right hand. Put your faith in the almighty God who has befriended you, knowing that he is a God who keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, help us not only to receive that reality from your word, but to have it so deeply rooted in our hearts that when trial strikes, we would be strong that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro, O oh Lord, but that we would be solid by your grace. Help us to remember who you are and what you've done, that we may never lose hope, never lose resolve, but every day, trusting in you, march forward for your kingdom and for your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen.